Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon text is a gospel lesson read earlier for you by Pastor Bob. Now this might come as a big surprise to most of you, but I am not huge into sports. I know, shocking, right? Now don't get me wrong. I'll catch a Vikings game on TV every now and then, and who doesn't like to get to a Twins game if you get the chance? But for sports, for me, it's not the end-all, be-all of my existence. Now when I do watch a game, I find it rather interesting when players acknowledge God after a big play. One player that sticks to my brain, especially for this, is when Sammy Sosa would hit home runs. I know, it's a little dated. But you'd see things like this on TV. And I always wondered their motivation. Like, is Sammy Sosa saying, thanks God for letting me hit a home run? Or, thanks for letting me be this famous baseball star? Or, I always wondered if it was like some feigned attempt to look humble after he did a great thing. Now, if he's doing it for the right reasons, if he's using this opportunity of momentary fame to point people to Jesus, well, then I'm all for it. And Sammy Sosa isn't the only athlete to do this sort of thing. He's not the only athlete to acknowledge the existence of a higher power. Another one that kind of sticks in my brain is Tim Tebow. Remember him? He was the NFL quarterback that would kneel on the sidelines before a game and pray. I found one article that gives insight to uh, Tim Tebow's background and tells us, Tebow was homeschooled by his Christian parents and spent his summers in the Philippines helping with his father's orphanage and missionary work. During his college football career, the Heisman Trophy winner frequently wore references to Bible verses on his eye black, including the ubiquitous John 3.16 during the 2009 BCS championship game. He has been outspoken for his pro-life stance and his commitment to abstinence from sex before marriage. The article goes on to say, and he is well known for his signature move, dropping to one knee on the field, his head bowed in prayer, arm resting on his bent knee, known throughout the world, as Tebowing. You might be wondering at this point, what on earth does this have to do with our gospel lesson? Well, in a sense, we have a similar situation with Elizabeth and Mary. And it's like Elizabeth is a super fan and Mary is the star athlete. Elizabeth, in her words to her young relative, Mary, echo the sort of cheering you might get after a big play in sports. Listen to what it says in Luke 1:41. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed in a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. The crowd goes wild. Okay, that last part's not in Scripture. But Elizabeth, through the Holy Spirit, realizes that something really special is happening here. And she rightly identifies what it is by calling it a blessing or saying that Mary is blessed. Now that word blessed is one that I feel sometimes gets used out of context or it's, one, it's a word that people don't really know what they're saying when they use that word. So I'd like to tell you, the way I like to define a blessing is having been given a reason to be thankful. 
Mary has been blessed, and she's been given a reason to be thankful. And so when we say things like, God bless you, and I'm not talking like after somebody sneezes, but like, you know, when you actually mean it. Uh, when we say God bless you, you're asking God to give someone a reason to be thankful. Which pales in comparison to another phrase we like to say, good luck. As if to say, may the unknown forces of good and evil be ever in your favor, hopefully. They might not be, but yeah, so I hope for your sake that it's good. Yeah, Elizabeth used these words, this word blessed correctly because Mary has been given a reason to be thankful. Now that's not to say Mary is deserving of being blessed. Though some Roman Catholics may disagree with me, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a sinner, just like you and me. The Bible only lists one person as being sinless, and I'm sorry to say that's, that's not Mary. And though Roman Catholics would say that perhaps from the 700s onward, this was widely held that Mary was conceived and born without sin, a dogma referred to as the Immaculate Conception, this teaching became infallible less than 200 years ago, back in 1854, which is the same, state, or the same year that Kansas and Nebraska was added to the Union. But Mary, despite being a sinner, now carries the very Son of God in her womb. And it's because God chose her to do that that she is blessed. Now, the Greek word being used here in our gospel lesson for blessed is eulageo. It's the same word that we get the word eulogy from. And the lexicons define eulageo as giving praise. But, but when it's God doing the, the eulageoing, uh, or the blessing, or the acting, it takes on this nuance to, to, to give uh, to, as giving praise, uh, to cause to proper, to make happy, or to, to bestow a blessing upon, or in other words, to be favored by God. So yeah, Elizabeth is being blessed by being around preborn Jesus. And Mary is blessed for carrying preborn Jesus. But oh, can you imagine being Mary and having that responsibility and honor? Now, being the mother of God could be a huge breaking point around the knitting circle for Mary. But she also has another interesting situation that she's dealing with. A virgin birth can be a hard sell to a man she's essentially married to. But in this situation, Mary lets God have his way with her. Imagine, she's just chilling in her house, minding her own business, when an angel appears. And when she, in faith, receives what the angel says to her, she places herself in submission to that word. And it's her responses that show us that. First, with the angel, she responds by saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Then with, with Elizabeth who's talking her up like she is the number one person in all of history, Mary, Mary responds with, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. In both times, Mary doesn't say, Yeah, it's about time. I'm finally getting the attention, the honor that's due to me. Mary doesn't break herself up and say that she's worthy to accept this honor. She doesn't take pride in the fact that she is playing a pivotal role in God's plan for salvation. 
Instead, Mary decides to magnify God. In fact, that's why this song or poem in scripture is called the Magnificat. It's the Latin word which means to make something big. And especially for Mary here, when you make something else big, you make yourself small. The Greek here for the word magnify is actually megaluno. And it's the same mega that we use in English, as in like mega millions, like in the lottery. That's a whole lot. It's also the root for the word magnify, which like with the magnifying glass, it takes this little thing and it makes it bigger. And Mary certainly is not a big thing. She isn't some famous person. She isn't important. She's just a normal, pious, Galilean woman. Well, teenager. She knows that. Because she said, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Now the takeaway from this sermon is that we should try to follow Mary's example. It's so easy to get puffed up, to get prideful, to get indignant, to think my way is the best way. It's so easy to make yourself big and everyone else little. And that everyone else includes God sometimes. In work and in life, you boast and you brag and you talk yourself up. Or maybe if that's not your personality type, you're still guilty having those kinds of thoughts. In this look at me, look at me culture that we live in, it's straight up weird to pull a Mary. To say, don't look at me, instead look at God. That's, what's Mary, that's what Mary's doing here. She, she's telling us to God alone be the glory and honor, not her. And though this might look weird, from our culture, it's actually more the norm when we look at other people in the Bible. Like with, uh, in John 3, uh, 27 through 30, John the Baptist did the same thing. When the number of Jesus' disciples is growing and the number of his disciples is shrinking, people asked John how he felt about that. And he answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I love, I love this. He must increase, but I must decrease. Those are John's words. God must get bigger, and I must get smaller. Or like what the Apostle Paul says here in, in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. He also says in 2 Corinthians 12.9 and 10, uh, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I, uh, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul said this because he knew he was strong in the Lord. 
And what really gets me here is that Jesus did the exact same thing. But the difference is, in his humble estate, he saved the world. Jesus came being laid as a baby in a cow's feeding trough in a borrowed manger. He grew, and at the age of 30, he became a homeless preacher, wandering from town to town. He hung out with the lowly sinners, the tax collectors, the uneducated, the despised, and the rejected. And when the ruling class had finally had enough of his good news, they put this sinless man upon a cross, where he would die the most horrific and embarrassing death possible. He wore a crown of thorns and was placed into a borrowed tomb. Jesus became nothing so that we could become something. Jesus became nothing so that by his death we could be forgiven children of God, reconciled and brought back into God's favor and grace. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, he became something again. So that we who share in this resurrection will also be something. So Mary was really on to something here. That a good and faithful way to follow the Lord is by decreasing so that God may increase. So like Mary, may our souls also magnify the Lord and may our spirits rejoice in God our Savior. Amen.